Song 454, Brother Joy has announced that, and we were certainly happy in position to mark that and use that later in our service tonight. Haven't we been blessed again to gather and assemble, even as we are at this moment, to have the opportunity with life and with health and other matters in life that permit us the joy of assembling, even as we are at this moment? As usual, those songs that we have sung have been encouraging and uplifting, and we're certainly thankful to have been able to sing them. You may have noticed the title of the lesson tonight, Sinners Own, The Word of the Lord Endureth Forever. And that phrase is taken exactly from 1 Peter 1.25, and that was read just a moment ago in our hearing. I'll encourage you to hold your Bible open to that place as we step through some of the features of it and challenge ourselves yet one more time with a thought of the proclamation that that particular verse makes. It's a joyous thing to be a Christian. That joy seemingly is so powerfully presented in the pages of the New Testament. And that joy, among other things, reminds us of the very challenge of the book of 1 Peter. I've used this slide to somewhat remind us that the book of 1 Peter has, in many ways, matters that could be of great help to us today. For you see, the center word of this book is suffering. Suffering. Those people knew a lot about it. And they were safeguarded through these five chapters with regard to some of the features about how to endure it and how to do so in a way that's glorifying to God and how to do so in a way that's certainly in our best interest. I think we'd all agree that endurance is a very noble quality. We admire it in others. We hope to develop it in ourselves. And yet this book has much to say about endurance. Not giving up. Continuing onward, persevering, steadfastness in the midst of challenges. Just as surely as God's people knew a lot about that then, you and I know much about it in many ways even today. If I could call your attention to chapter 1, verse 1, we at least learn something about the people to whom the book is written. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered, abroad, scattered throughout... Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now those might be districts that are somewhat unfamiliar in some ways to us, but remember they were districts by and large positioned in the place we'd call modern-day Turkey. That is to say, it was a region somewhat far from Rome, but nonetheless in the Roman Empire. And in that place, Christianity was having some challenges. These people, you see, were meeting a number of forces, somewhat strong. And in this book, we find their suffering highlighted. What about you and me today as we seek to apply some of that, as we close that slide, why don't we do so beginning like this? Let's cast a spotlight first on the text. It's never our desire to take out of the text what's not there to begin with to ever make sure we keep the text in its proper context. For that reason on this slide, let's develop that concept of suffering a little bit more carefully. We just read about those to whom the book was written, chapter 1, verse 1. Could I now invite you to note verse 6 of the same chapter? Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness, through manifold temptations. So Paul pointed out a couple of things. First of all, it was to be noted that at least for a season, 
it seemed as if they were going to be enduring a period of heaviness. Now, that's the King James rendering of that Hebrew word. If you're reading another translation, like the American Standard, you may find something connected to grief through manifold trials. Now, the word manifold means various, having to do with, again, typically quite a bit more than one. And the word trial is there. There are times you and I are well aware of what is involved in trial. It can, in fact, test us to might well be the limit of our appreciation, the limit of our endurance. And yet, these brethren found themselves in a period of trial. Let's read on to the next verse. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Now we learn somewhat about the trial they were facing. It was a trial of their faith. May I point out that the devil will ensure that in some way your faith and mine is tried. That is to say, circumstances will appear in which decisions will have to be made. And it may well be that those decisions require of us what may distance us from those that we cherish or love or even past traditions of our family or acquaintances. There could be other possibilities. But you'll notice the trial of your faith, and it's quickly described, this is more precious than gold. Now, you and I may often appreciate somewhat about the value of gold, and yet the trial of faith, the strengthening of faith that may well develop from it, that is said to be more precious than gold. As you close verse number 7 with me, Verse 8 now leads us right into the embodiment of where this takes us. Whom having not seen, ye love. That word whom refers to Jesus Christ. Whom having not seen, you love. These brethren, they of course were a few decades after the death of Christ, and yet, though they'd never seen Him in the flesh, they loved Him. Doesn't that describe you and me? We've never seen Him either in the flesh, but oh, how we love Him. Oh, how we are appreciative of that which He did for us, and we desire to mimic Him, to walk in His footsteps. That verse goes on to say this, In whom, though now ye see Him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Now, among those verses, again, we noted that they were tried and the trial of their faith, which was to take place, was apparently to be a strong one. This isn't the only time, of course, in the Word of God we encounter this. Do you recall the seven churches of Asia were such that many of them were about to face extreme trials? One congregation was such that many of their members, we read in Revelation 2, were to be cast into prison simply because they would not renounce faith in Christ, and they would not abandon the nature of the Christ who had died for them. I might point out that kind of faith and conviction not only speaks volumes about them, but it surely is a motivation for you and I to have a faith in the category that theirs was. You'll notice near the last part of that slide that the suffering that we encounter in the pages of the New Testament is a suffering that's described in some ways like we read in 1 Peter 2, verse 20. 
that's just a little bit ahead of the passage read in their hearing earlier. But in chapter 2, verse 20, For what glory is it, if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Now that's easy to understand, isn't it? If I do badly and suffer because of the badness I've done, well, maybe that is not at all to be considered strange. But as Peter was quick to write, if you do well, and you exhibit faithfulness, and you exhibit that conviction, and you have continued in that wellness, but you suffer because of the wellness, and you take it patiently, that is commendable. Isn't that a motivation for us? It may well be that the trials that you and I encounter may be completely unfair. And from the perspective of what is righteous, it would not seem reasonable at all. And yet we must endure it with fairness and endure it with perseverance. One last thing on that slide then surely would be this. Those to whom Peter wrote were admonished in the midst of this trial to be faithful to the Lord and to see in Him the way to emerge victorious through it. Having said all of that, let me turn the page to this next one and cast a spotlight then on those verses that just precede the lesson text. Beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Now let's pause for just a moment and note this. One of the matters that was troubling these strangers scattered abroad was the matter of their redemption. And Paul here, rather Peter here, highlights the fact that you were not redeemed with corruptible things. That is to say, through the agency of gold or silver or other things that would fall in the category of materialistic matters, but rather you were redeemed by the blood of Christ. And that surely is a fact that must be imprinted in our thinking. No wonder then in that light, Verse number 20 says that this same Christ was foreordained, meaning that it was planned that He would offer Himself that way. And in the shedding of His blood, we have the opportunity to be drawn near by the act of redemption. You'll notice in light of that, we now come to verse 22. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth. Let's step through this verse a bit more slowly. We notice that these brethren are such that they had purified their souls. Now that thought is delightful and ever so wonderful to ponder the purification of the soul. But how did it come about? The text leaves us not to doubt. Their souls had been purified by obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. And so it was the obedience to the truth that purified the soul. It was not some other means or some other attribute, nor was it the philosophies of men or the vain traditions obtained therefrom. 
it was, as they're so easily explained, obedience to the truth that had been revealed by the Spirit. And that verse closes by saying that the motivation that then went with it was that those brethren were such that they could love one another with a pure heart fervently. Now that description of the church is as appropriate and apt and as needful today to love one another with a pure heart fervently. Now that love, of course, leads us into verse number 23 because as Peter further expounds upon this nature of being redeemed, he says, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. Isn't it amazing that the description of that passage reminds us that we have been born again just as, of course, Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, being born of water and of the Spirit, John 3, verse 5. And here we see it connected to the Word of God, which, according to the verse, liveth and abideth forever. Finally, all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. The things that surround you and me, the things that are matters of the life of mankind from a materialistic way, these things under the banner of being likened to grass, it says they wither and they fade. They deteriorate over time. But standing in dramatic contrast in verse 25 is this. The first word of that verse is the word but... And that's a word that introduces a distinction, a contrast, as opposed to the grass that withers and fades. It says, the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Directly planted before us is the assertion then that the word of God endures. And it does so forever. And it's that concept that's the topic in the main, at least, of our lesson tonight. What about the endurance of the Word? What about some features connected to that that I hope will be rather shocking to the mind and almost, in other ways, remindful of just how special the sacred text is? This next slide is one that steps through that, using a few additional ideas to, to bolster the concept, all of them drawn, of course, from the Word of God. In 1 Peter 1.23, that verse we just read a moment ago, it is there said that this word of the Lord liveth and abideth forever. The literal description there, if you notice the verb forms on that particular slide, is that this word of the Lord lives and remains. It's as if the word of God is portrayed as a living entity. There are many, I suppose, who would look upon us as near crazy for thinking that. Because it's a book, isn't it? It is filled with words, isn't it? And yet, Peter said it lives and remains. But of course, Peter isn't the only one that would make language like that. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, a passage quite familiar to us, For the word of the Lord, as it's therein described, this word of the Lord is set forward to be a living and active thing. Living and active. So much so that it can even divide to the asunder of soul and spirit. 
And maybe in that connection, we begin to see that whether it's the Hebrew writer or whether it's Peter, there's a consideration that the Word of the Lord is maintained as something that has an aspect at least comparable to what's living. Could I offer this thought? Human beings have the capacity to adapt, to face any circumstance due to the capability of thinking and appropriate action, and thus make conclusions relative to that circumstance. That would be both wise and appropriate. In the same way, the Word of God was finalized in an ancient time in such a way that it can address any circumstance presented to it. It has advice that's wise, appropriate, and needful for the addressing of any problem or circumstance the human family may ever encounter. And in that sense, you see, it does have an element of being alive to it. I didn't say it might be necessarily easy. One may have to study in detail. One may have to dig rather thoroughly and appreciate in those passages that are in, therein found what the proper course of approach would be. A number of years ago, gospel preachers of somewhat the distant past made statements along this line. There's no false teaching that the, man, that the mind of man can ever concoct, that there's already not verses in the Bible to defeat it. In other words, the Bible already contained within what was written long ago has the seeds of truth in such a way that it can overcome and vanquish any false teaching that the mind of man may ever come up with. And isn't it true? You and I may have no idea what kinds of false teaching the mind of man may come up with a couple of centuries from now. They've come up with enough already. And yet even then, if God so allows the earth to stand, this book will have within it the means of overcoming that false teaching, absolutely destroying it, and helping make sure that the mind of man remains in the track of pureness which God intended. Doesn't that indicate, again, an attitude of adaptability to confront whatever it faces? You may notice next on that slide, it is there that Peter makes the statement in verse 25 that the word of the Lord endureth forever. I hope we don't read too quickly past that word forever. In fact, in that light, I've asked you to note a few things on that slide. In 1 Peter 1.25, when that statement is made that it endureth forever, the verb literally suggests to, uh, to abide, to remain. And as it does that, you may notice the context had to do with a quotation from Isaiah chapter 40. There, the statement had connection with the Word of God and its future appreciations, the coming of John the Baptist and the message that he would proclaim. But you notice that that was over eight centuries prior to the birth of John, and yet John did come and John did preach, exactly as the Word had, had indicated that he would. One final thing about that slide before we transition to the next one then would be this. There's a rather great distinction made between things that fade like grass and things that endure, in this case, the Word of God. I suppose none of us need to be overly reminded that there is a great distinction there. 
in fact, isn't it true that whatever man puts together will deteriorate? It will decay, and it will fade. It will tarnish and be marred by the passage of time and the weathering of elements and other matters that, in fact, beat against it. Did Jesus himself say in Matthew chapter 7 that when the winds came and the floods also, being brought about by the rain that beat upon it, there was a house and it was built on the sand and it fell. But another house that was built on something not like sand, it was built on obedience to the Word and it stood firm. Is it any wonder that the endurance of the Word is something for which we can be so greatly thankful? And so that enduring quality of the Word of God will be the central focus of this next slide. I would wish for you to think with me, at least for a few moments, about some of the things that the human family has made and some of the things that the human family has developed and some of the things that the human family has set forward, in some cases, as being greatly able to withstand. I've listed some generalities on the slide, but we will list a few other ones along the way. And so, first of all, what about those things that have been portrayed, like the Titanic? It was asserted that even God can't sink this ship. And when it set sail in 1912 on its maiden voyage, it sank to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean because it encountered an iceberg in the month of April of that year. In fact, it was on the 12th of that month she set sail and roughly the midnight hour can you imagine the clarion call of distress that went out when the engineer on board said that the particular bulkheads had been breached and one too many had been breached for her to stay afloat. And two hours later, she slipped beneath the surface of the Atlantic. Over 700 people died. Isn't it something to imagine? What men thought was unsinkable what men thought could last, did not. Men had built skyscrapers with the finest of the engineering knowledge at the time. And in so doing, those buildings were no doubt impressive. You and I, though, are well aware of what has befallen them over the course of time. I mentioned for your thinking the pyramids of Egypt. Now, I'll be quick to say, those buildings are still at least visible. But if you've looked at them with care, you've noticed that the exterior of them has been greatly deteriorated. Those blocks over the weathering of wind and time, they are not the sharpness that they, that they once were. And furthermore, many of them have been looted by robbers on the inside. They have been tarnished compared to what they were at the time that the Egyptians constructed them. Other buildings, some in our modern day, incredibly impressive. And yet, isn't it true that as these buildings exhibit again the deterioration, it takes us back to a passage like this. Men have often thought that they could construct matters that might last nearly indefinitely. And so far, you and I know that has not happened, nor shall it ever. May I invite you to think back to the Tower of Babel. In Genesis chapter 11, the human family, under the wisdom of the moment, thought that they could construct a tower whose top would reach into the heavens. 
And they began that construction project. And God confounded those languages and took care of that matter. And there is no Tower of Babel today. Where did it go? You and I realize the other construction projects. What about the seven wonders of the ancient world, some of which are even alluded to in the Word of God? Nebuchadnezzar was a head of gold mentioned in Daniel chapter 2. And he constructed the hanging gardens of Babylon. I'm sure I need not tell you. Those hanging gardens are nowhere to be found. And that part of the world named the country of Iraq is a desert. Long since faded and deteriorated under the banner of time. Now Nebuchadnezzar constructed that, I'm sure, in an impressive way. And it was something to behold. But it hasn't endured. The other six wonders of the ancient world. We've listed the pyramids. That takes care of another one. But whether it be the lighthouse at Alexandria, whether it be the Colossus at Rhodes, or yea, any number of the other ones, they have long since gone. That Colossus was destroyed by an earthquake. That took care of that one. But men no doubt thought that she would last. She did not. You'll notice next on that slide, what about matters of human priority? There have been those who have put together impressive matters in public policy. I might even mention several nations of antiquity. The ancient Egyptian nation was something to behold. But she was defeated in the battle of 609. And that nation never really again rose to the prominence that she once had known. What about the ancient nations of Babylon or Syria or Greece or, yeah, even Rome? The Bible foretold the existence of those nations in the book of Daniel, and they did rise to prominence in some cases for hundreds of years, but they didn't last forever. And might we say that the nations, of course, that deteriorated and decayed and were overcome that way, or a reminder that the finery of public policy doesn't rest in the mind of man. Our beloved country, the United States of America, rose to prominence, of course, in the midst of the 1700s, and of course arrived at the grandeur of her own existence in the 1770s and 1780s. And we, of course, have enjoyed that kind of preeminence now for quite some time. But you and I would be rather naive to suppose that our nation will last forever. The other great nations of the past didn't. We would be foolhardy to think that we shall, and that in part will be due to the sentence of what shall be descriptive of our pursuits. Because any nation that turneth away from God, Proverbs, or rather Psalm 9, 17, will in fact be turned into hell. Might it be fair to say that all of those other nations made those foolish choices and eventually were overcome? The next opportunity I ask you to notice, what about the appreciation of human opinion, human learning, human wisdom? That too has been, needless to say, very impressive. There's no one that would question or doubt the progress of human learning, be it medicine, be it science, be it other avenues of knowledge. And all of those things 
quite often are such that they're able to work to our benefit and advantage. But isn't it still true? And those who study those things in detail, with at least a degree of understanding, will have to admit that there's always an understanding that goes with the thought that there's more to be known and more to be appreciated. There were scientists a hundred years ago who thought they had written a definitive textbook on things like astronomy. And yet what they wrote then would be looked upon as foolishness today. In fact, many younger school children likely would laugh at the assertions that were made in some of those books because now we know that that's not the way it is. But the fact is, they then thought that that was right. May I again remind you that the Word of the Lord endureth forever. There shall never come a time when a greater knowledge than this will be set forth when a truth unlike this will be known, because this is the truth, and it is the unchangeable message of the God of heaven. It isn't subject to these kinds of matters we've just discussed, because, you see, it is not subject to the same kind of matters that caused them to fail. It is God that authored this one. We read in 2 Timothy 3.16 about the nature of the God-breathed Word of God. The Word of the Lord, you see, as presented there, is said to be profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. I would then offer the thought that there is no wonder about the endurance of this book. Think with me what Jesus said in Matthew 4, verse 4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Those great matters of antiquity have come and they have now gone. They rest now upon the dust bins of history. They have been overturned over the course of time, and yet the same book that the Romans read is the same one you and I still do. And the same book that guided the Byzantines 1,500 years ago is the same book you and I still read. The same book that at least prompted the matters of the 13th and 14th centuries is the same book that still is the prompting guide for truth today. And can I not say the same book that Alexander Campbell read is the same one that you and I still do. And the same book, you see, that was a prompting force in the mind of so many others who often laid down their lives for the understanding of truth is that same book that you and I still cherish. I would be remiss not to say that there have been those who have so considered the Bible detestable that they wanted to destroy it. They exerted effort to destroy it, but they were unsuccessful. I suppose none more famous than Voltaire, the French philosopher who in the 1700s overtly and publicly declared that within a hundred years there should not be a person on earth that will know anything about the Bible. He felt sure it'd be destroyed. I think it's amazing and almost humorous that in the very house where he lived, there came to exist a printing press that printed Bibles. The same book that he thought would be destroyed not only lived well beyond his death, but still lives on today. The Word of the Lord endeareth forever. And it is for that reason you and I can found our life upon it. 
and do so in a way that has confidence and assurance and has within it the peace connected to forever being satisfactory to God. That last slide, the one that I would ask you to note with me, is that the Bible has often been at least likened to an anvil. Maybe horseshoeing and things like that are not as familiar to us as it was perhaps a few decades back, but you and I remember that the old Smiths, they would in fact use an anvil together with a hammer, and they of course would shape a horseshoe and shape other matters of steel and iron as needed for the cause at hand. Many a hammer was destroyed over the final beating against the anvil. The anvil's like the Word of God. It'll wear out many a hammer. Many a thing intended to, in fact, beat against it and rail against it ultimately shall be crushed and it'll fall. But the anvil proceeds onward, unchanged, and the anvil proceeds on undefeated. Isn't that the way the Word of God is? That book that your great-grandparents and grandparents and parents and yeah, you and I still cherish, and that our children shall as well. Because this book lives forever. It endures forever. It shall not go away. And isn't it interesting that Revelation chapter 20 even points out to us that on that great and fateful day when the books are opened, you and I can rest assured that one of the books opened shall be the one used to judge you and me in this present era and in this present day. Is it any wonder Jesus said in John 12, 48, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. The word of the Lord endureth forever. God in His book challenged those of the ancient day and you and me today. You must never add to it or take anything from it. That was told to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 4, verse 2. Reiterated in Deuteronomy 12, 32. Highlighted with respect to Revelation in Revelation 22, verses 17 and following. And isn't it true in that light, if we are not to take anything from it or add anything to it, it must remain as delivered so that it too will continue to be the pureness that God initially instilled within it. When Peter wrote those words that we read earlier, he said that that word of the Lord has been revealed to you, and it is that gospel that you have heard. You and I today still have the blessed gospel. It is that word of the Lord that endures forever. I hope, among other things, that we have been greatly refreshed, and we've been greatly comforted to be surrounded by a book that will never change, and it will endure there may be those that hate it, and there may be those that discredit it, and those who insult it, and those that deride it, and those who have no interest whatsoever in it. But that won't change anything about its contents. And it won't change anything about the one that wrote it. And it won't change anything about the fact it's going to serve as the standard for judgment. Oh, how thankful we can be for the unchangeable Word of God. The plan of salvation that was set forward in it is still viable, still needful. The church described in it is still the church as the Lord intended it. And the other features of life are those which the Lord would ask of us as we live faithfully to Him. 
tonight as you and I examine ourselves, whether we be in the faith. Let's close our lesson with a very, very brief conclusion like this. In the midst of their suffering, they were told that an attribute that could provide some ease was the recognition of an unchanging word. May I offer that that thought is still a valid one. When you and I find ourselves challenged, may we turn to the book, to the word that never changes, and recognize that the same message is needful for us has been needful now for 2,000 years. That's comforting. Christians of those eras needed it, and they followed it, and you and I can too. As the word of the Lord endureth forever, why don't we offer this invitation tonight, if there be one or more in this assembly that would need to make a public response to it, we would use this opportune time to extend that invitation and realize that you would be responding to the invitation contained in this book. And that's what makes it so special. And that's what makes it so wholesome and continuing. If you've never become a Christian, won't you believe on the Lord and repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized? If you've known that way of life and have strayed from it, come back in love to your first love. And as you do that, as you repent of those sins and make confession of them, the Lord has promised to forgive you. We'd be delighted to, in fact, extend the arm of love and encouragement, however we may do that. And we'd love to do it at once while together we stand and sing the chosen song.